0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Can you believe this year's halfway over? So much has happened. Time flies. Sometimes you go, 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 and you look up and six months just flew by. I'm still hoping to get some traveling in this summer and see my family. So important. Even with everything going on, it's important to remember to slow down. Take a minute to reflect and make adjustments for the rest of the year ahead. And if you need a little help with that, therapy is an excellent option. Personally, it helps to have an allotted hour a week where I can stop and think about myself, things I'm working on, issues that come up, and refocus on goals I'm working towards. You can work through anything, not just major traumas. Self-care is not selfish. If you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, and all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get started. Plus, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So take a moment for yourself. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's com slash serial killers. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com
1: Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
0: Early morning light spilled into the woods as a woman and her father trudged through the grass, The sea sparkled in the distance over the beautiful hills of Branksome-Dean in Bournemouth, England.
1: But the two weren't soaking in the scenery. The woman looked back at her father. His expression was wary. He almost looked as though he would stop right there, turn around, and go back home. She ignored him and pressed forward toward a ravine.
0: Eventually, she slowed to a stop in front of a large bush, A thick cloud of flies buzzed around it. She pointed, hand shaking.
1: The two cautiously trudged forward and pushed aside the shrubbery. Their eyes landed on a sight they'd never be able to forget.
0: A naked woman was sprawled across the ground, her body barely concealed by a camel-colored jacket and a black dress that had been draped over her. Her eyes were vacant, and her limbs were twisted at odd angles. This woman had been murdered, and her killer was still on the loose.
1: Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson.
0: Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar.
1: In this episode, we'll wade deep into the horrific murders committed by Neville Heath, known throughout Britain as the Lady Killer.
0: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
1: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
0: Today we're discussing Neville Heath, an English World War II pilot who became well known for horrifically killing two women in 1946 and attempting to assault and kill more. Even before the murders, Neville was notorious for his good looks and charm, which he frequently employed to con his unsuspecting victims.
1: Last week, we covered Neville's childhood and his lifelong yearning for an upper-class lifestyle. But by the time he was 29, in 1946, a series of failures had plunged him into a massive depression.
0: This week, we'll follow Neville as he reaches his breaking point and progresses from petty criminal to murderer. In
1: 1946, Neville Heath's life was in ruins. His appetite for luxury had gotten him in trouble with the law after he developed a habit of stealing from and impersonating the British elite.
0: His penchant for fraud and theft left him divorced, alone, and jobless. His attempts at getting a commercial pilot's license had failed because of his criminal record. In early June, he was grounded for good. He drank heavily and occasionally blacked out, The only other thing he put any effort into was conning beautiful women.
1: On June 15th, Neville was doing exactly this when he met 21-year-old Yvonne Simmons at a service reunion dance in London. Yvonne lived with her family in the seaside English town of Worthing, about two hours south of London.
0: Neville introduced himself as Jimmy, a lieutenant colonel, but Yvonne sensed no deception. She was immediately taken with this handsome man who claimed to be a war hero and eagerly agreed to a date.
1: Neville took Yvonne to the Panama Club, an exclusive members-only restaurant. This choice of venue thoroughly impressed Yvonne, and Neville could then tell she was trusting enough to be an ideal mark. After a few drinks, he boldly insisted that Yvonne sleep with him. Yvonne was a virgin and politely declined. Neville didn't press the issue. Instead, he asked for a second date.
0: The two went out the very next day, and this time Neville proposed marriage, arguing that since the war had just ended, they, as survivors of those terrible years, should surely seize the day, swept off her feet, Yvonne shyly agreed, and Neville once again suggested they sleep together.
1: Neville most likely had no intention of marrying Yvonne. He'd been known to propose to women he courted to get them into bed quickly, and his ploy worked again here. He took Yvonne to the Pembridge Court Hotel and signed them in as a married couple. He then led her upstairs to room four.
0: Afterwards, Neville asked Yvonne to stay a few more days... But she demurred. She needed to get back to her parents' house in Worthing. She returned home on a high, eager to tell her family about her charming new fiancé, Jimmy.
1: Neville called her a few days later, on Thursday, June twentieth, 1946, to check in, as a normal fiancé might.
0: Despite the fact that Neville likely didn't plan on ever seeing Yvonne again, he continued playing his role as the doting fiancé to perfection. He was an experienced compartmentalizer.
1: Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
0: Thanks, Greg. According to psychologist Dr. Richard Nicastro, compartmentalization is designed to keep secret and non-secret worlds separate from one another. It can be used to protect unsavory actions or thoughts from interfering with how one views themselves. For Neville, despite the darkness lurking within him, he still identified as a charming, upper-class hero. But this self-deception isn't sustainable. The compartmentalizer can only act contrary to their self-perception for so long. Eventually, the walls they've built begin to crumble. By late June of 1946, Neville was perhaps reaching his limit.
1: Only a few days after leaving Yvonne, Neville's walls came fully crashing down. On June 20th, Neville went out drinking with a friend, Leslie Terry at the Trevor Arms pub in the London neighborhood of Knightsbridge. That night, he noticed a woman alone at the bar named Marjorie Gardner.
0: 32-year-old Marjorie Gardner was a talented artist and actress well-known around the Chelsea drinking scene. She had a young daughter and was recently separated from her husband. Neville later said... Marjorie was only a casual acquaintance. In the last two or three weeks, I had seen her several times in the Nags Head. Sometimes I saw her too at clubs I belonged to.
1: Marjorie recognized Neville at the Trevor Arms, but knew him by the name Jimmy Heath. The two made eye contact, and Neville went over to chat her up.
0: He introduced her to Terry, who left the two alone soon after. Terry would later estimate that by the time he left, Neville had already had about 24 pints of beer over the course of several hours. The number may have been an exaggeration, but regardless, Neville was extremely inebriated.
1: Like with Yvonne, Neville used his entry to the Ritzy Panama Club to impress Marjorie. While there, they ran into Marjorie's ex-boyfriend, who had a 20-something nurse on his arm. Rattled and jealous, Marjorie was determined to have a more enjoyable night than her ex.
0: Neville and Marjorie left the club after midnight. After some debate, Neville convinced an extremely inebriated Marjorie to go back to a hotel with him and called a cab. Harold Harder, a taxi driver, picked Neville and Marjorie up from the Panama Club and, ten minutes later, delivered them to the Pembridge Court Hotel.
1: Harold noted that the couple was extremely drunk, so much so that Marjorie didn't seem aware of what was going on. He watched them both stumble into the hotel and drove off.
0: There was no night porter on duty, but Neville still signed the registry. He wrote Lieutenant Colonel Heath and signed Marjorie in as Mrs. Heath. It's possible that using his real last name suggests Neville had no intention of committing a crime. If he had, he might have made more of an effort to conceal his identity.
1: Regardless, Neville led Marjorie upstairs to room number four, the same two-bedroom suite that he had taken Yvonne's virginity in only a few days before. According to the book Handsome Brute, Neville alleged he shut off the light for the night and then blacked out. He came to in the early hours of the morning. He was on the floor, confused to see the light had been turned back on. His confusion turned to shock when he saw Marjorie lying dead on the bed closest to the window. Looking down, Neville saw he was covered in blood.
0: This description suggests Neville fits the criteria of a disorganized killer, This type of classification was created by the FBI to help profile serial killers. Disorganized kills are often spontaneous, opportunistic, and acted out under the influence. A disorganized killer might also flee to avoid capture and sometimes won't remember committing a crime.
1: Whether or not he meant to kill Marjorie, Neville understood the severity of what he'd done. In a daze, he hurriedly packed and left the Pembridge Court Hotel, unseen. He immediately fled London and headed for Brighton, an English city about an hour's train ride away. He arrived there later that morning, on June 21, 1946.
0: Once in Brighton, Neville called Yvonne. Ever the attentive fiancé, he told her he wanted to come to Worthing to meet her parents. It was only 30 minutes from Brighton, so he'd be there shortly.
1: Meanwhile, back at the Pembridge, the hotel's maid, Rhoda Spooner, was sent to room four at 9:10 a.m. to check on the Heaths. As far as the Pembridge staff was concerned, no one had come down for breakfast or checked out. There was no answer when Rhoda first knocked, so she hesitantly opened the unlocked door.
0: A woman lay under the covers of the bed closest to the door while the second bed was unoccupied. Rhoda asked if she'd be down for breakfast, but there was no answer. Assuming the woman was still asleep, Rhoda left.
1: After a few more attempts to clean the room, the assistant manager, Alice, was alerted around 2 p.m. Alice entered the room a little more boldly. She drew back the curtains and pushed the sheets away from Marjorie's face in an attempt to rouse her. But she was greeted with a horrifying sight.
0: Marjorie was clearly not asleep. Large, angry bruises covered the left side of her face, and she was very still. The police soon arrived on the scene, led by Deputy Commander Reginald Spooner with the Scotland Yard. There, they grimly observed the atrocity Neville Heath had committed.
1: Marjorie's legs had been bound with a handkerchief. Lash marks and shallow cuts from a whip covered her body
0: she had suffered additional injuries to her chest, and it was clear she had been sexually assaulted.
1: Even after all the abuse she had received, it seemed that the true cause of her death was suffocation.
0: Marjorie was found in the bed closest to the door, with her head deliberately tilted to the side. But the bed closest to the window appeared to be where she'd been killed. Its sheets were soaked in blood.
1: Neville had washed her face and posed her body to make it look like she was sleeping. This was done in an effort to buy himself time to flee as quickly as he could.
0: Despite his efforts to aid his own escape, he had already signed the hotel's address book, and the police quickly identified him as the killer. Scotland Yard detectives went to Neville's parents' place to see if Neville had gone home to hide. But he was not there, and his parents knew nothing of his whereabouts.
1: Police were left without any leads, and they feared Neville would soon find a way out of the country. In a desperate attempt to locate him as quickly as possible, investigators released a written description of Neville to the press.
0: Rather than calling him a suspect outright, Neville was referred to as a person who would assist with their inquiries. Both Neville Heath and his alias, James Robert Cadogan Armstrong, were listed in the description. The hunt for the lady killer had begun.
1: In a moment, we'll track Neville on the Lamb as he runs from London and claims his second victim.
0: This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more, live more, visit joinaccountingplus.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 platinum jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch offs. Play them! Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story.
1: On June 21st, 1946, 29 year old Neville Heath. Absconded from London after his savage murder of 32 year old Marjorie Gardner at the Pembridge Court Hotel. Scotland Yard put out his description in the London papers, which claimed he was simply wanted for questioning.
0: In an attempt to skirt the London authorities, Neville fled to the seaside city of Worthing to see his new fiancée, Yvonne. He checked into the Ocean Hotel and met Yvonne in the town's centre. She noticed Neville seemed unusually worried about the evening papers that had just arrived from London. He had purchased two of them. When she questioned him about his antsy demeanor, he mentioned that a woman was murdered at the Pembridge.
1: Yvonne was alarmed. They'd just stayed there the week before, on their second date. But Neville refused to say anything else. He breezed over it and hurried her off. They were meeting her parents at a golf club and he wanted to make a good first impression. He was to be part of their family, after all.
0: Yvonne's parents loved Neville, and her father happily gave Neville his blessing for their union. The couple departed from the golf club after lunch.
1: That evening, Yvonne and Neville reunited for dinner. Well into the meal, Yvonne finally prodded Neville into telling her more about the murder at the Pembridge.
0: Accounts differ slightly on the story he told her, but the gist of his narrative was that he'd lent his room to a friend so the man could spend the night with a sex worker. He went on to say a police inspector had called him the following day as the room was in his name. He then met the inspector at the hotel to answer a few questions that morning.
1: There, he was shown the crime scene. He described it in detail to his fiancée, stating... Inspector Barrett said that a poker had been stuck up in her, that it was the poker that killed her. I'm not so sure. I think it's more likely that she'd been suffocated.
0: It's possible that Neville took pleasure in informing the innocent Yvonne about these horrors that he committed. In an article about the influx of crimes being posted on social media, Pamela Rutledge, the director of the Media Psychology Research Center, remarked that oftentimes criminals are looking for a reaction. The human reaction to something disturbing can elicit a feeling of power in the perpetrator. In Neville's case, he created a story where he was able to describe the atrocities he'd inflicted the night before. Therefore, he was able to get a reaction from Yvonne without actually having to admit fault.
1: Unaware that the man sitting across from her was describing his own brutality, Yvonne bought his story. She was certain that her fiancé's only mistake was trusting someone else with his room key.
0: At some point on the 21st, Neville had sent the London police a letter of explanation about his involvement. It arrived on June 22nd, 1946, the day after the murder was discovered. His account of what happened in the letter differed slightly from what he'd told Yvonne. He claimed again that Marjorie was a sex worker and that he'd lent his key to her so she could spend the night with a client. Neville returned to the room at 3 a.m. as he and Marjorie had agreed, but she was already dead.
1: In the letter, he also gave a description of the client she'd taken to his room. Then he audaciously offered to mail the weapon she had been beaten with, He made sure to say, you will find my fingerprints on it, but you should also find others as well.
0: He never sent the weapon. The police weren't as easily convinced by Neville's lies as Yvonne had been.
1: But she'd soon have the wool pulled from her eyes. The newspaper naming Neville as a person of interest and featuring his description reached Worthing on June 23rd. Yvonne and her parents woke to find her new fiancé's real name and description plastered across the front page.
0: Yvonne immediately called Neville in a panic.
1: Neville calmly assured her he was going to Scotland Yard right away to clear everything up. Surely it was a misunderstanding, as he'd already spoken to an inspector, but he'd be sure to call her when he got back to London.
0: Instead, Neville once again ran, Shortly after his flight, the manager recognized his description
1: in the papers and called the police. Police arrived to find Neville long gone, but they searched his suite and found that in his haste, he had left many valuables behind. In the room, they discovered an entry slip to the Panama Club, proving Neville had been there with Marjorie. They also found his address book. Inside were over 400 names and addresses, most of them women.
0: The manhunt then intensified. Neville was last seen at Worthing's train station, but there was little indication of where he'd go next. The names in the address book were dead ends. Neville Heath had escaped.
1: On June 23rd, 29-year-old Neville arrived in Bournemouth, a city about 100 miles southwest of London.
0: Bournemouth is a sleepy coastal town steeped in history. It's where Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, making it an ironic place for Neville to land.
1: His charming Dr. Jekyll act was perfect for a holiday town where folks were intent on having some fun. Neville quickly took on a new name and rank Group Captain Rupert Robert Brooke, an alias he got from a well known British poet, Rupert Brooke. This provided him with a fresh start, and he used it to check into the Tollard Royal Hotel. He became known around the hotel as Bobby.
0: Outwardly, he was the perfect gentleman. If the atrocities he'd inflicted on Marjorie were still on his mind, he didn't show it.
1: On the 24th, Neville met a new acquaintance named Peter Rylett at the hotel. The two had lunch together, and Neville explained he was a pilot in town for an aerial show later that week. He claimed he didn't know anyone in town and was just relaxing for a few days before the show.
0: Peter liked Neville, who he knew as Bobby Brooke. Neville asked Peter to show him around, and the two became fast friends. They spent the next six days together. Peter knew that Neville was there alone and graciously invited him to parties in town.
1: At one such party with Peter, Neville noticed a new guest arrive at the Tullard Royal, named Peggy Waring, a 37-year-old divorcee. Neville approached her later at the bar, and both appeared immediately smitten with one another.
0: It was a whirlwind romance. While cavalier at first, Neville soon became quite attracted to Peggy the more time they spent together. She said... He attached himself to me, so much so that we were together most of the time. He drank excessively. On the day after my arrival, he asked me to marry him.
1: It seemed to be the same old Neville. But soon, Peggy noticed a change in Neville's behavior. He seemed tense, as if trying to control himself. She was wary. This smooth, confident pilot was quickly becoming obsessive. She decided to head home to London.
0: Neville begged her to stay a few more days. He said he'd be flying in an air display at the nearby Shoreham Airport and would love for her to watch. She reluctantly agreed. He'd been talking about flying for her since they'd met.
1: But when he picked her up for lunch on the day of the event, he suddenly informed her that it was too windy to fly. Peggy was troubled by his behavior. He seemed antsy and tense. She excused herself to her room and didn't return. But Neville wasn't about to just let her go. He chased her and demanded to know what was going on. Why had she left like that? He was sweating profusely.
0: Peggy assumed he was distraught because of his intense feelings for her. She felt guilty and tried to let him down gently. She just wanted to be friends.
1: Neville convinced her to have one last dinner with him. There he continued to plead for Peggy to stay and give him a chance but Peggy resisted His last words to her were You have won yourself a magnificent victory I only hope you congratulate yourself on Monday
0: Peggy didn't realize the threat that lurked beneath these words She departed for London that night on the 11:30 train with a heavy heart guilty about the anguish she'd caused Neville
1: Coming up, Neville Heath finds an outlet for his fury at Peggy's rejection.
0: Now, back to the story.
1: It was summer 1946, and 29-year-old Neville Heath was on the run for a murder he'd committed in London. He'd taken refuge in the vacation town of Bournemouth. There, he'd become besotted with a 37-year-old woman named Peggy.
0: Peggy had grown increasingly nervous at Neville's possessive behavior. After rejecting his advances for several days, she left Bournemouth for London. Neville was alone and felt the bitter sting of dismissal.
1: For him, this wasn't just the end of a summertime romance. It was a brutal rejection that damaged his already unbalanced ego. And his post-breakup mental state would soon prove dangerous for the next woman who crossed his path.
0: According to licensed psychologist and author Dr. Guy Winch, rejection can destabilize our inherent need to belong. Intense rejection can be seen as a huge attack on our self-worth. This can create a surge of anger, leading certain people to search for an outlet to unleash their anger upon.
1: As we've seen, Neville felt the need much more acutely than the average person. He constantly went to extreme lengths to impersonate lords or high-ranking military. And when he faced rejection, he would do exactly what Dr. Winch describes and search for an outlet. Neville found his outlet in 21-year-old Doreen Marshall. The two met on July 3rd while walking along the beach. Unlike many other guests in Bournemouth... Doreen wasn't there for vacation. She was recuperating from the measles. Her father, Charles Marshall, felt she needed a change in scenery to better heal. Charles offered to pay for her to stay at the elegant Norfolk Hotel in Bournemouth until she recovered.
0: Though this had been a generous gesture on her father's part, Doreen felt lonely during her stay. She didn't know anyone at the hotel and was gentle and quiet by nature.
1: So when she met an attractive South African pilot named Bobby Brooke, or as we know him, Neville Heath, she readily accepted his offer for tea. They hit it off, and he invited her to dinner. Doreen agreed and met Neville at the Tollard Royal at
0: 7:15. As dinner wore on, Doreen found her date was not as charming as she'd thought. Neville was drinking heavily. He'd ordered a magnum of champagne. As Doreen wasn't much of a drinker, he drank most of it himself.
1: After dinner, the couple was served two glasses of port on the house. Neville drank both. Doreen appeared pale and sober throughout the later part of the evening. Other guests in the dining hall wondered if she was perhaps ill. A little before midnight, while Neville was occupied briefly, Doreen asked another guest to order her a taxi. He did so and assured her it'd be there shortly.
0: But as soon as the guest left the dining hall with his wife, Neville canceled the taxi. He insisted on walking Doreen home. He was a gentleman, after all.
1: They left around midnight. Neville told the night porter, Frederick Wilkinson, I'll be back in half an hour.
0: Doreen said he'll be back in a quarter of an hour.
1: Doreen clearly had no intention of sleeping with Neville and didn't want anybody getting the wrong idea. She just wanted to go home. The night porter watched Neville escort Doreen into the gardens. Then they disappeared into the dark. Early the next morning, on July 4th, the night porter of the Tollard Royal went up to check on Neville. It was 4 a.m., and he hadn't returned after walking his date home.
0: Wilkinson let himself into the room. There, he was surprised to see that Neville was sound asleep in bed. He thought this peculiar but didn't rouse him. When questioned the next day about how he got in without being seen, Neville laughed. He eagerly told Wilkinson that he'd found a ladder and climbed up secretly as a prank.
1: Neville didn't arise until well after 10 a.m., despite the chambermaid's repeated attempts to clean the room. When he finally allowed her to clean, she found a burn mark on the paint above the gas fireplace. She also found sand and dirt under the carpet, and debris in the sink.
0: This wasn't the only hint of foul play uncovered that day. Mrs. Phillips, whose husband had called the taxi for Doreen the night before, ran into Neville in the hotel lobby. She inquired about Doreen and if she got home safely. Much to her discomfort, Neville didn't answer. To cover for the awkwardness, she complimented his scarf. He took it off to let her admire it.
1: His neck was revealed, and she saw scratch marks on his skin. Mrs. Phillips didn't address the marks, and the two parted ways.
0: Meanwhile, at the Norfolk Hotel, a waiter noticed that Doreen hadn't come to breakfast. They checked her room. There was no sign of Doreen, but her belongings were still there. The rest of the day went by and she failed to appear. On July 5th, the hotel manager finally called the police and reported her missing.
1: Neville was notified by the Tollard Royal staff that Doreen was missing. The staff knew he'd walked her home on July 3rd, thanks to the night porter. It was suggested that he call the police with any information he might have.
0: Neville might have guessed it was only a matter of time before he became a suspect. Rather than flee, he tried to use his charming wiles to get out ahead of suspicion. He called Detective Constable Souter, the head investigator. He told D.C. Souter he was Group Captain Rupert Robert Brooke. He had information on the missing young woman.
1: After having his afternoon tea, Neville arrived at the Bournemouth police station at 5.30 p.m.
0: He had spent his formative years lying. He was a pro, and he strode into the police station, sure that he'd be able to put the police at ease.
1: Neville identified himself to police by his alias, Rupert Robert Brooke. He was shown a photo of Doreen and confirmed he'd had dinner with her at the Tollard Royal on July 3rd. He had only walked her part of the way home. He described what she was wearing and noted that she had said she was being pressured by an American friend to go to Exeter. She'd be busy for a few days.
0: He confidently gave Souter his false name and address. Souter, like many before him, was initially duped by Neville's story, but he had second thoughts after Neville ran into some unexpected guests at the station.
1: Doreen's father, Charles, and her sister, Joan, showed up. Neville appeared shaken as he gazed at Joan. She looked a great deal like her sister. Both the marshals had a bad feeling about him when they met. His unnerving, skittish stares at Joan were hard for him to hide, and harder for them to ignore.
0: Neville told Doreen's family the same story he'd told Souter, that Doreen had said she'd be gone a few days, so she'd most likely pop up soon. As Souter listened to Neville speak, he realized with a jolt that he recognized him.
1: Neville's photo hadn't made the papers, but it did get circulated around Scotland Yard in the Police Gazette. Souter was certain he was not staring at Rupert Robert Brooke, but at Neville Heath.
0: He boldly showed Neville the photo and carefully watched for his reaction. Neville laughed it off, apparently tickled by the uncanny resemblance. Souter joined in. How odd indeed.
1: But while Neville prepared to leave, Souter covertly alerted Constable Johnson. Johnson called Nottingham Hill Police Station to verify some details on the wanted man, while Souter kept Neville entertained with idle chit-chat. Johnson finally rejoined the men to ask Neville, What do you say your full name is?
0: Neville, with a grin, answered, Group Captain Rupert Robert Brooke
1: Johnson pressed him, revealing that they knew him to be Neville Heath and he was wanted for murder.
0: Neville assured them that, despite the resemblance, he was not Neville Heath. The constables called Scotland Yard and were put in touch with lead detective Spooner. He said he'd verify the background of this Rupert Robert Brooke, but in the meantime, they had to keep Neville at the station.
1: Realizing he was being detained, Neville grew flustered. He demanded to leave, but Souter and Johnson had become certain he was their suspect. They'd noticed the scratches on his neck, the same Mrs. Phillips had seen.
0: Meanwhile, an inspector searched Neville's hotel room, The evidence they found was so obvious, it almost seemed planted. In his jacket, they found Doreen's return railway ticket, a single pearl, and a luggage ticket for Neville's checked suitcase at the Bournemouth Rail Station from when he arrived.
1: That night, the inspectors went to the station to retrieve Neville's suitcase. It had three labels. Captain NGC Heath, Major NGC Heath, and Captain J. R. C. Armstrong. Within it were items that directly linked him to Marjorie Gardner's murder. a blue woollen blood-stained scarf, and a blood-stained riding switch with a diamond weave. the same weave as the markings that had been found on Marjorie's body.
0: At the same time, the Bournemouth station received a call from Spooner that Rupert Robert Brooke did not exist. Neville's story was unverifiable. Johnson laid the evidence before Neville and demanded confirmation that he was indeed Neville Heath. Neville is said to have responded with a simple, oh, all right.
1: Police held him at Bournemouth Police Station until the Scotland Yard and Spooner arrived to charge him. While waiting, Neville wrote out his statement carefully and passionately.
0: By the time Scotland Yard arrived, Neville was still not done with his statement, While they waited, Spooner looked over the evidence and searched Neville's room a second time. There, they found 49 handkerchiefs.
1: According to the book, Handsome Brute, many of these handkerchiefs were monogrammed with women's names and had lipstick marks on them. Like his address book with a plethora of women's numbers, this array of handkerchiefs is indicative of an extreme number of sexual encounters.
0: This collection of conquest trophies and his recent acts of violence suggest that Neville could potentially be classified as a sexual sadist. Sexual sadism is defined as one who gains arousal through pain, humiliation, fear, or other harm. In the article, The Sexually Sadistic Criminal and His Offenses, researchers focus on a report that studied 30 sexually sadistic criminals In the report, at least 40 percent of these offenders have kept items belonging to their conquests to facilitate arousal. Neville had long been a ladies' man, but this massive handkerchief collection hints at just how long he'd been fostering darker impulses.
1: Neville was taken back to London on July 6th. Harold Harder, the cabbie that drove Neville and Marjorie to the Pembridge, identified Neville in a lineup.
0: Neville Heath was then formally charged with the murder of Marjorie Gardner.
1: Doreen was still missing, but she would soon be found.
0: On July 7th, a woman named Kathleen Evans walked her dog near a ravine in Branksome dean a park by the beach just outside Bournemouth. The dog acted strange near a cluster of bushes, sniffing exuberantly. Kathleen noticed a horde of flies surrounding the spot, but she continued on, not thinking much of it.
1: The next day, Kathleen read the paper. Doreen Marshall and her disappearance filled its pages, prompting Kathleen to reflect on what she'd seen yesterday on her hike. She mentioned it to her father, and together they returned to the area to venture into the brush.
0: There, they found the lifeless body of Doreen Marshall. She'd been sexually assaulted and mutilated.
1: Police arrived at the horrific scene. Doreen's corpse had been there for a week. The decay of the body, along with the animals and insects, contributed to what Handsome Brute describes as a sight so shocking that some of the officers vomited.
0: Large bloodstains were found on a path that led to the road. This indicated Neville had killed her on the path, but moved her to the bushes for concealment. Her hands had been cut from a clear struggle. A broken string of 27 pearls was found nearby. The 28th pearl had been found earlier in Neville's pocket.
1: The body was taken to the mortuary and identified by Doreen's father. Shortly after, an autopsy was performed. Doreen's body had gone through a savage ordeal.
0: She had been struck on the head and had abrasions on her back. Injury around her collarbone suggests that Neville had kneeled on her to pin her down. Many of her bones were broken, and deep cuts peppered her body. Like Neville's first victim, she had suffered additional injuries to her chest and it was clear she had been sexually assaulted.
1: Her true cause of death was a hemorrhage from her throat being cut. When questioned about Doreen, Neville claimed that he had no memory of what happened that night. While it's possible that Neville's heavy drinking was responsible for this, there's also his anger to consider.
0: He'd recently been rejected by Peggy, a woman he was unnervingly attracted to U.S.-based psychotherapist Dr. Ron potter Efron has been studying what he's calling rage blackouts. This is defined by extreme anger followed by unconsciousness. He notes that in these instances of rage blackouts, the intention is to destroy the other person, and those experiencing rage can lose consciousness while doing so. When they come to, it's usually because their victim is no longer a threat to them. It's possible that when Doreen rejected Neville's advances, this rage blackout was ignited.
1: While Doreen's body was being analyzed in Bournemouth, Neville was sitting in a cell in London. He wrote notes of apology to his parents and his ex-wife Elizabeth, sorry for the anguish he was causing them.
0: The story of Neville Heath and his double murders had taken Britain by storm. Each time he appeared at the courthouse, hordes of people would show up to catch sight of him, mostly women. Harry Proctor of the Daily Mail remarked, rarely have women been so strangely fascinated by a murder trial.
1: The forensic evidence for both murders was plentiful. Additionally, none of Neville's friends or family would testify on his behalf. In the end, Neville's efforts to conceal what he'd done suggested that he knew exactly what he was doing. The jury found Neville sane and guilty. He was sentenced to death by hanging.
0: On October 16, 1946, a crowd of over 3,000 people, mostly women, gathered outside the Pentonville prison. Some were protesting, others were gloating
1: neville had dressed up for the occasion he wore a new gray striped suit as he was solemnly led to his death
0: just before his hanging neville was offered a customary drink of whiskey typical of neville he said to have nodded and said while you're about it sir you might make it a double
1: at 9 a.m on october 16 1946 at the age of 29 neville heath was hung to death at Pentonville Prison. It took seven seconds.
0: Neville Heath had been a man of contradiction. He was a handsome, charming, and at times romantic war hero. Yet he was incurably dissatisfied with himself.
1: His insecurity and greed twisted him into a monster. Guilty of unimaginably atrocious acts. Killers like Neville lurk where we least expect and beg us to question who we can trust.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back Monday with a new
1: episode. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
0: To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar.
1: Several of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
1: Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler. is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Maggie Admire. Serial Killers is written by Kate Murdoch and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.